Welcome back to the Drew and Judy show. We're doing an episode today about the United States of America and some of their exploits all around the world. Mostly bad exploits, if you ask me. But anyway, we've got another special guest joining us today. We're very excited about that. So without further ado, let's cue the music. So Drew has brought on another special guest. I think it's three or four in a row now. So why don't you introduce them once again? Absolutely. So this is uh, Chanel. She's a comrade from Clemson YDSA. Um, got to know her a lot this year. Um, and she's a great organizer, a great friend, a great person. And she just graduated political science from Clemson University. And yes, Chanel, if you wanted to plug anything and um, say anything else that I missed about yourself and uh, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to throw in that I was an economics minor in case anyone (laughs) said that I needed to like go read an economics textbook, which (laughs) I've gotten before. Um, I should probably add that this isn't like my first time being like on like political on media because I did used to have like my own show with my friend, um, but we kind of stopped that recently. So it's, it's good to be back. That's for sure. I did not know that. That's really cool. What was it called? It was called Populist Podcast. Um, we really did a lot more of it back in 2018 or actually it was more like 2019, 2020. And then like when Bernie lost, we kind of like had all the, uh, life sucked out of us. So. Oh. <laughs> and it was also like COVID kind of made it hard to um, stay energized because, you know, we kind of had the workplace and home environment merged a lot. And that was especially the case for me with school because I would just be working in my bedroom for hours on end on various things. So yeah, we kind of stopped around then, but again, it's really good to be back and on y'all's show for the first time. Excellent. Yeah, we're really glad to have you on and have your input and everything. Though you got a lot of good ideas for our time, the Clemson YDSA. So <laughs> I should say that the name of your podcast thought that was fun. That's a good one. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I should also probably add in that I wasn't just some random member. Um, I used to be the vice president. I was a founding member. And most recently, I was the social media manager. So again, I'm not the just... most based memes. Yeah. Really funny memes. If anyone wants to check them out, um, why do you say Clemson? I don't really go on there anymore. So it's Anything recent may or may not be my doing, but <laughs> yeah. I'm one of the managers now of the YDSA Clemson um, Instagram. Yes. Try to fill your shoes as best I can. <laughs> well, I have I have a meme that I made as like a parting gift for uh, one of the other members because he specifically requested that I do it. So I'll like send it if you need anything to post. <laughs> 
Excellent. I would really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I guess um, before we get started about imperialism, I know in the past like 40 hours, probably weighing pretty heavily on our minds, the most recent uh, Supreme Court uh, decision, you know, striking down Roe v. Wade and all that comes with that. And I mean, even more implications um, further down the line, because they mentioned, um, you know, reconsidering um, gay rights and contraception and plenty more, I'm sure, is to come. Um, if you wanted to give any input to that, Chanel. Yeah, I just guess it's really terrifying because like uh, the draft decision was like, we need to review the right to privacy. And then you hear all this stuff about um, border patrol agents being able to go into people's houses without a warrant as long as they're within a hundred miles of the border. Something crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And also you hear about them suspending Miranda rights or suspending, not suspending, um, ending the necessity for police to read Miranda rights to people, which are, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say will be used against you, that kind of stuff. Um, and the infringement upon the separation of church and state called for in the establishment clause through through only a few days ago with the main schools about the vouchers. They can now go to religious institutions. They should. I don't think they should be going to government funding that should not be going to private schools, period, um, to begin with. So the framing of the argument, I think, is really dumb, but um, certainly not to religious institutions. Yeah. Um- the only thing about that was the precedent was that the lemon clause made it to where it could only federal funding or like public funding could only go to private schools if it was for secular purposes. So like textbooks and pencils, paper, all that. So I think it's really terrifying that we're watching um, a lot of, I don't know, theocratic measures be taken and not just theocratic just kind of getting closer to that road of fascism i don't like i don't like throwing the f-bomb around (laughs) i mean it's definitely debatable a lot of the time and people don't want to hear that word but we're definitely well on our way if it wasn't obvious at this point to having a dictatorship um you know, if you ask a person of color, they might tell you that the U.S. has always been this way. And it's just like now, like the whole unmasking process is happening. Um, we could probably later on when we have more facts and evidence from like the government and um, later on down the line in like 20 years, we could figure out what exactly is like the push, like when we see what happens, usually um, fascism comes out of the need for or the feeling that there's a need to replace something that was once lost. So the German Empire, the Roman Empire, and it's extremely fear based. Yes, exactly. So it is terrifying, especially since I am a trans person of color um, and we're already killed at. Uh, disproportionate rates to 
have to see this kind of go on with your country. But I mean, we'll see what happens. And we're definitely, my uh, fiance and I are definitely keeping a close eye on everything. And we know what our options are. Like we might leave the country and that's kind of terrifying to say, and that's disheartening to say, but yeah. Charles and I were talking about that last night, you know, things get bad enough. I we're in a privileged position because, you know, we're white and straight and all that, but like, you know, things will get to a point where they affect all of us. If things keep going as they are and, you know, we're debating like, you know, which country we should go to. Um, but that's really unfortunate to think about that. You, you know, this is where we have voting power. This is where we have family and friends and, and things and people we love. And, um, you know, to leave that behind and have to start anew is really unfortunate reality that many of us are starting to to look at in the face, you know, with all these rulings and the way this country is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just sad because not only would I have to like leave the place that like, I mean, I've been living in South Carolina since I was seven, almost eight I've been living in this country like my entire life and my mom came to this country from South Africa to, I mean, I don't want to make it sound stereotypical, but she wanted to be a pastor and kind of pursue her dreams. I mean, she could have done that in South Africa too, but she also met my dad, which ultimately led to her staying. So it's just kind of sad because I also see, um, I don't know if you guys watch him, but, uh, Roman, who has a YouTube channel, he's a Russian uh, YouTuber. Um, he's documented the fact that he can't like live in his homeland anymore. He can't live in Russia anymore because of all the sanctions they're going through and how that's essentially made it difficult for him. And now he's staying in Georgia, uh, the country like right next to Russia. Yeah. But, I feel like a very similar thing is happening, at least with myself, or it's getting ready to happen, which is sad because you don't want to have to leave. You don't want to leave people behind. But at what point uh, do you just say, all right, things are bad. We got to leave. And the even worse part about it is that if like I were to go, I mean, I'm not like an incredibly uh privileged position like i don't have that much money um obviously social class wise not really that privileged but um it just doesn't feel right having to or wanting to leave and go somewhere like canada that also benefits a lot from imperialism like the u.s which i guess is a good segue to our topic now that i mentioned that <laughs> yeah it is i guess one thing you we, you brought up before we exit that topic is like especially if you're a marginalized um person right now like i would encourage you to develop some sort of of exit plan if you need to leave the u.s like figure out you know, you need a visa like how you know how are you gonna make this work because um other countries have various immigration laws and customs and so forth um a second language too now's yeah, as good a time as ever i suppose yeah become familiar with that country or those countries that you're looking at um 
you know, really think about like, what is that? You know, maybe it'll come up naturally, but what is that point where, you know, I say this is enough and my life is in danger and my rights and my freedom and I, I need to leave before things get worse. Um, so just food for thought there. Just amazing that, you know, over a hundred million Americans have fewer human rights than they had two days ago. Yeah. Just to think how backwards that is. I think for anyone who shares our general set of belief systems, we're all tortured souls in a way because, you know, you have to expose yourself to these points of views and these sort of, you know, depressing development situations and developments. And that's, that's how you gain the empathy and sort of the knowledge you need to go out and try and make a difference. So. Yeah. It's easy to just have someone tell you this is the right thing. Just go with it. But this is not the right thing. And people are not going to just go with it. Yeah. You really have to think critically. You really have to look outside um, corporate media and, you know, very neoliberal institutions that you grew up in. And you really think like, okay, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this substantiated by facts or has this been heavily distorted by uh, corporate funding and regressive social positions and so forth? And it's abortion is the single most important political issue in this country. It is the one, the single thing that mostly conservative people they will not, they will never budge on this ever. Yeah. If they had a hundred lives, they would die on a hill a hundred times for it. They've been working for 49 years since Roe v. Wade to, to do you know, this. They've just, they accomplished what they set out to do. But the fact that six unelected officials yep. are able to wield this much power and what they could do in the future is just beyond a terrifying. But I think that's, that's enough about that development because we could go on for hours and hours and hours about the last two days on that front. So we'll, we'll go ahead and take it on to our, our main topic of American imperialism. I think Drew has wanted to talk about for a few months now, maybe even longer, who knows, since we started the <laughs> podcast. Um, but you wrote a paper for a geography class about American imperialist actions. I think it was like Guatemala in Brazil. If I'm correct. That's right. And you've done plenty of research as well. And it, Chanel, it seems that you're pretty well versed as well. So I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say. And I guess, Drew, go ahead and lead it off with your big expose. Of course. Yeah, I did this for my geography in Latin America in the Caribbean class um, in the fall of 2021 with Dr. Terry. Uh, amazing guy. I've had him for three classes, a wonderful professor, a wonderful human being. Um, but yeah, my project here is entitled American Intervention, Latin America, U.S. Efforts in Guatemala, Brazil to Fight Communism from 1945 to Today and the Lasting Impacts. And I'm not going to read the whole paper, but I'm going to try to summarize it. Um, so basically, Guatemala, um, during 1944, during the, towards the end of World War II, was trying to overthrow George Abiko, a pro-Nazi dictator. Uh, we have a horrible, basically, slavery system. And he was very elitist and um, worked with multinational corporations to keep the, the working class and indigenous peoples in their place. And the Guatemalan Communist Party, the PGT, 
elected a school teacher, Juan Jose Arvalo. Um, Arvalo advocated for a concept known as spiritual socialism, um, which kind of alarmed the U.S. But in his inauguration speech, Arvalo uh, kind of got ignored. Sorry, <laughs> until um, until um, Guatemala elected Jacobo Arbenz in 1951. This is where things really changed. Um, he wasn't much of a leftist himself, but um, like he said in his inauguration speech, like his vision was to convert, to quote, convert Guatemala with a predominantly feudal economy to a modern capitalist state, unquote. Um, and lots of land reforms distributing people who were um, held back from power in the past. And this pissed off a lot of, um, you know, elitist groups and people in high power. Um, none of that. I don't think I'm not sure the U.S. government would have intervened if not for the United Fruit Company. Um, they grew lots of bananas on massive plantations across the country. Uh, they would have lost 200,000 acres of their land, only, but it was only the, the land that was classified as um, uncultivated, and the vast majority of it was. Um, and they you know, offered appropriate compensation at twice the rate that they paid for it. Um, but they got really mad and um, they quickly weaponized their corporate power in uh, mass media and the United States and the government through, um, you know, the private influence of government and manufacturing consent. Um, they were able to get the public on their side and the private elites and the government, all three of those parties. And then the CIA started meddling. So the CIA originally planted rifles with communist insignia to be, quote, discovered, unquote, as evidence of Soviet meddling and pretense for American intervention. They sent in a bunch of people, staged a coup and dropped sulfate bombs in an act of um, state terror. And um, they trans transmitted anti-government radio broadcasts and staged a naval blockade. So they were heavily involved with this, both physically and, um, and psychologically. And the Guatemalan army refused to fight. They were scared off by all these developments. And President Arbenz ended up giving in to American demands. And then, of course, the U.S. gave the country freedom by installing a, a military dictatorship, of course, under Carlos Castillo Armas. Uh, he quickly became dependent on the U.S. for financial support. Uh, and it would go into a over 30 year civil war, um, which killed like, let's see, two, about 200,000 civilians um, from 1960 to 1996, 93 of which were, were killed, 93% of which, excuse me, were killed by the US backed military. Uniquely out of this came a young Che Guevara who became radicalized by this experience and he gained a lot of knowledge from these um, psychological terror campaigns and the CIA strategies and all the corporate influence. Um, and this will convince them of, of quote, the, necess the necessity for armed struggle against imperialism, unquote. Um, and he'd go on to be successful in the Cuban revolution. Now in Brazil, uh, just a few years later, um, the US and Brazil had a special relationship um, they had lots of military officials from Brazil who would do an exchange with the U.S. National War College, um, where there would be 
basically indoctrinated with pro-imperialist and neoliberal ideology and then come back to rant to Brazil. Uh, Brazil tended to be more socially conservative than its neighbors too, which made it easier to influence. Um, there was some conflict later um, under President Gutulio Vargas when they tried to nationalize the oil. And the U.S. obviously had a problem with that. And Vargas ended up committing suicide after a false allegation of um, trying to assassinate another member of the like conservative Brazilian elite. The election, um, Victor of 1955 after that, um, Juscelino Kubitschek um, was a pro-U.S. centrist and economic nationalist, but his, his vice president was quite a lefty, Joao Goulart, better known as Django. Um, he doubled the minimum wage, um, brought voting rights to millions of Brazilians, um, enacted a literacy program that was very successful across the nation, um, more land reforms, um, and the, the military, which was highly conservative, um, began to despise Django. Um, John F. Kennedy and the um, ambassador to Brazil, Lincoln Gordon, um, had a meeting that was very interesting, and they, they said they were going to back a military coup, quote, if it comes to that, unquote. So see, you know, CIA money began pouring to Brazil, um, and they began training the local army. They bribed state governors to, that committed to a coup, invited more officers, uh, officers to train in the U.S., particularly Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. And uh, they made every effort to oust Django. High-level officers spread conspiracy theories that Django's plotting his own left coup, left-wing coup, excuse me, those are going to shut down the government, abolish Congress, or create a new constitution. Um, and the CIA just, you know, made partnerships with a lot of these publishers and media in the country to distribute propaganda, you know, against um, Django and communism and all that stuff. They also handpicked a successor, Castillo Branco, when they they were pretty confident they were going to overthrow that government. Um, the coup began on March 31st, 1964. The band of soldiers uh, took over Django's residence and he ended up fleeing the Uruguay. His tanks rolled up to Congress and left-leaning members are quickly ousted. Um, a State Department operation known as Brother Sam had made military vehicles available to the coup plotters, but they actually didn't ended, did not end up being necessary. And yeah, it was, uh, they had, you know, decades of very little freedom and a military junta empowered you know dictatorship um it would also leave the door wide open for further uh degrading u.s influence through um things such as the operation condor a 21-year bloody campaign of state terror and political repression mainly pretty much just against leftist sympathizers you know suspected um which was conducted by the cia and estimated to have killed over sixty thousand people in the southern cone region of south america so that is my paper. Yeah, and I think you touch on a lot of great things. I just want to like quickly, and I'll, I'll work back to U.S. imperialism. I want to quickly highlight um, some other imperialist projects from countries around the world, like how France's monetary system 
kind of still has a lot of control in Africa and how they indebted uh, Haiti for hundreds of years. And they're still, obviously, as we could tell, in an economic predicament that is definitely not um, ideal. And the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the countries exploited by France, when they got their quote unquote independence, they couldn't just leave the franc system, which was the currency, I believe, that they used. Um, if they tried to, uh, a lot of the leaders that would try that were socialist leaders and they would quickly get thrown out of office or their economic conditions would worsen um, to the point where one of the leaders of one of the former French African uh, countries said, we would rather live in freedom poor than still be associated with the French. I'm paraphrasing, but. It's Thomas Sankara, right? No, that was a different leader. I'll try and find who exactly said it, but. There's dozens of these African, that the French in Africa, it's just yeah. every single country, they had something to do with it. It was yeah. pretty bad. And then also Belgium is now just recently getting around to apologizing, only apologizing to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if you don't know why I'm only saying only apologizing, um, King Leopold, uh, Second, he did a lot of um, not very good things to the Congolese people, enslavement, uh, torture, cutting off hands. Yeah, I think if you want a little sneak peek at, you know, a little bit of what the Belgians did in Democratic Republic of Congo, I read um, Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness in 11th or 12th grade in high school. Um, it was appalling. And that that's not even really getting to the heart of it. Um, then give you a little bit of idea of uh, the brutality that went on there and the dehumanization of those people. Right. And just to um, follow up on what I said earlier, I believe it was Ahmed Sekoutori that made that statement against France. It was either him or... Um, Modibo Keita. I don't really remember which one it was, but I did a presentation on it. Um, but yeah, um, going back to Belgium, they just recently got around to apologizing. And I believe as far back as I can remember, Spain has not even apologized to Mexico for um, what they did to uh, Mexico with all the years of um, colonialism and um, genocide. I mean, it wasn't really nearly as bad in Mexico as it was in the island of Hispanola or um, the Caribbean countries or even in places like um, Argentina and Chile, but it's still very telling and even now the UK, it only just recently gave independence to like countries like India. So really the US isn't the only bad actor. I'm sure everyone can list countries. I just wanted to point that out. Um, of course. Yeah, but yeah. 
getting back to U.S. imperialism, um, yeah, basically what you described with Brazil is uh, known in Latin American politics as the age of the national security state or the national security era, which was between the 1960s and ended in the 1980s, 1990s with um, Augusto Pinochet uh, getting voted out on, what's what's the exact word I'm looking for? It was a referendum, but it's a specific type of referendum where they say yes or no. Um, I'm not going to come up with the word, but it was a very specific type of referendum that they kicked out Augusto Pinochet and again, yeah. yeah. And even then they still had problems with um, creating a compromise with the military government to make it to where the military government wouldn't intervene again, but that's something I'll work back to. Um, So the national security era in Latin American politics, a lot of it did come from the U.S. having a lot of anxieties about Soviet influence in the Western Hemisphere, um, because all of this kind of kicked off after um, Cuba and Fidel Castro were kind of brought together after the Cuban Revolution, in which Castro's army was successful. Um, There was still, I just want to give a little historical context, there was still a lot of um, questioning of what ideology Castro would bring to Cuba after uh, the rebels won. Um, I believe he was more social democratic at first because he just wanted to kick American ownership out of um, the island. but eventually became more radical and he started allying himself with the Soviet Union. And then we got the Cuba we all know today, which has a vanguard party that adheres to Marxist-Leninism. So that was kind of the trigger point along with the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was another trigger point that made the U.S. go even harder on socialism and communism. I think I wanted to point out something real quick. Um, mm-hmm. When I read about Cuba and how it developed, they originally, as I understand it, did not want to partner with the Soviet Union. They wanted to be their own country and do their own thing. They didn't agree with every single thing the Soviet Union did by any means. Um, but because of the U.S. embargoes and all the Western countries falling into U.S. hegemony, they were kind of forced to ally with the Soviet Union economically. Um, to, to, you know, provide for their country in some way and get much needed resources and monetary funds that they otherwise would not have had. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the development a lot of the time, because when a country says they want independence, oftentimes they don't necessarily want to ally themselves with another country that might be seen as um, kind of patronizing so like the Soviet Union with how they kept the Eastern Bloc together. I mean, that wasn't necessarily something Cuba was interested in, but it was something that they basically saw no choice in having to do because, 
again, like you said, the U.S. shut them out of the world economy. So from that, from the Cuban Missile Crisis, where, you know, you can debate, like it's debatable about who was in the wrong, who who knows, who cares, the world almost ended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, From that point, the U.S. was like, we can't have anything like this ever again. And they had had their CIA operations beforehand, like what you said with Hakobo Arbenz. That type of specific intervention is something that you would see more earlier, um, where it wasn't necessarily someone who was a socialist that was getting kicked out of office. It was because they were challenging the status of land in um, a Latin American country. And that was a huge, huge thing for oligarchs and capital corporations. Yes. It was a very huge thing. And it was well known in Latin American politics that you could go for the social services. Like you could provide like healthcare, education, you could do all these things. But the one thing you could not do is you could not go after their land, which Hakobar Benz obviously posed a threat to. Um, And he eventually got kicked out of office because of that. So I'm not saying that in a good way. Obviously people can come to their own conclusions about that. Um, But so that's kind of the major development. That's how a lot of leaders would get kicked out of office. It was because they posed a threat to the land of the capitalists and the oligarchs. So with that, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, what we see more of is that the U.S. tried to go after anyone who really posed a threat to U.S. dominance in the region and really anyone who like might have been a socialist or communist. So I think the Brazil example is a really good um example to demonstrate with the military government. There is also Chile, which everyone knows about Salvador Allende. Um, One of my favorites. Let's go. Yeah. The, the, the whole circumstance around him was interesting because he won with about a, a third of the vote in Chile. So we think of that now as that's kind of weird that he was able to, but that's just how the electoral system in Chile worked at the time. It was usually just three candidates and whoever got the most votes won. And it was even just a struggle to get him confirmed because of that fact, because they like to say they didn't win a majority. Again, I'm not going to make any value judgments, but, and the way that he operated was he basically did everything legally So it was a legal path to socialism, if you will, because when Chile was a socialist republic for about 11 days in the 1930s, led by someone named Marmaduke. And no, I'm not making that up. This is all 100% real. Um, They had a law on the books saying that the government could step in and uh, socialize any industry that was on strike. So you could already see how a lot of labor activists wanted to take advantage of that fact. And they wanted to basically look for a way to socialism quickly. And again, the law is the law. Allende's hands were tied. He had to. But the political establishment 
in both Chile and the U.S., uh, didn't really like that too much. Richard Nixon wanted to bring Chile to its knees, I believe is a direct quote. Yes. Yeah. Him. And how he did that was how the U.S. does it with every country that poses a threat, embargo, um, sanctions, you know, the whole cocktail, if you will. Um, they bring democracy. Yeah, bring democracy. <laughs> and so by the time halfway through Allende's term had come around, um, the economy had come to a screeching halt. Also, truckers, everyone knows about truckers, truckers in Cuba, or not Cuba, sorry, Chile, incredibly right wing as well. So there's that. Just like in Canada. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't want to like move things around and make it easier for uh, the government to process things when they took over industries. Because again, there's always going to be some inefficiency when a government does things. Um, yeah. But again, the inefficiencies are different versus a private market. Uh, scenario. So halfway through the Allende administration, um, a lot of mothers had had enough. They went to the streets because it was bread lines everywhere. Um, because again, the supply was being shot because the U.S. was making it hard for Chile to trade. And plus, when the government takes over an industry, there's going to be a little learning period. Um, so because of all these factors, we got the original 9-11, September uh, 11th. I forget what exact year it was. I believe it was 1970. Let me, let me look it up. But Salvadorian Day. 1973. Yeah, I was right. I was going to say 1973, but 1973, um, the day Allende either got shot or he put a shotgun in his mouth and killed himself. Actually, I think it was a pistol, a pistol that, um, Fidel Castro gave him. But anyway, so the military and here's the real kicker, the military and the general that Salvador Allende had promoted Augusto Pinochet turned against him and killed him. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and installed a military dictatorship. And what you see is that that happened a lot in South America. You know, there was a good movie that I watched when I was in high school um, about kind of similar developments in Argentina. Um with a different uh, military regime that disappeared a lot of people. Um, the Pinochet military regime also disappeared a lot of people. Um, I think the only uh, places that that really didn't happen was or were Colombia and Venezuela and Mexico, I believe. But Mexico had a three-party or not a three-party, it had a one-party system that would just shift ideologies when it was convenient. And, oh, wait, it was Costa Rica as well, because Costa Rica abolished its military, like, in the 1940s after a military coup. So, Basically. yeah. <laughs> I think Peru was the only one that was a little different because it was a left-wing military junta, which is interesting to think about, but... Eventually, they got their military regime with um, 
Fujimori, Alberto Fujimori, um, who his daughter <laughs> came within like a hundred thousand votes of winning the election, which is kind wow. of crazy to think of recently versus Castillo. Um, but yeah, so that was more of a Cold War, like towards the end of a Cold War development. And then we get to the new stage of U.S. imperialism, which it's just coup d'etats against um, or sanctions against countries that don't necessarily ideologically align with them. Um, even if you're successful, eventually the U.S. is going to catch up with you. So everyone knows about Cuba and everyone knows about Venezuela. Um, the quote-unquote socialist project in Venezuela, you know, you could have your opinions on it. Um, from my perspective, it looked a lot more like a social democratic experiment because, again, every country is going to have constraints when there's not a socialist um, world power that's kind of able to throw its weight around. But so Venezuela eventually... Um, after the Chavez administration and into the Maduro administration started being on the receiving ends of pretty harsh sanctions and they weren't able to get around it like they were beforehand, um, which kind of along with the increase in oil supply um, around the world kind of shot their one resource that they were making money off of. Um, similarly, with Brazil, there was Lava Jato, which everyone who knows a lot about Brazil um, could probably speak on a lot better than me, but just to give it a rundown, um, Lava Jato uh, translates to car wash it was operation car wash um and it was supposed to expose all the corruption within um the pt the workers party which was lula da silva's um party in brazil that ended up winning in 2002 2006 2010 and i believe 2014 that had brought a lot of Brazilians out of extreme poverty, provided public health care, literacy, um, yeah, literacy, um, higher education, all these things. Um, and it brought the World Cup and the Olympics to Brazil, but that actually probably might have been part of the problem. That was pretty problematic. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a huge problem. But so the PT was kind of the sole target of Lava Jato because they were in power for about 13 years at the time. And they had been exposed for a lot of corrupt things that they did in terms of contracts with the major oil company in Brazil, Petrobras. But it turned out recently, thanks to someone who's now um, kind of not on good terms with a lot of people in the left, at least, Glenn Greenwald, he kind of exposed oh, the fact. Yeah, very, very difficult person to um, talk about because he's done a lot of good. And then now he's just on Tucker Carlson as like a court <laughs> or whatever. But so he kind of exposed that it was kind of all coordinated and 
the investigation itself was corrupt, so they ended up freeing Lula. And I think more recently, the coups and sanctions aren't kind of working as much as they used to. So I remember the Cuba Libre um, kind of thing going on. And I don't want to make like any value judgments on like Cuba's government or anything, because one, I don't live there. And I know people that came to this country from there are going to have different opinions, especially depending what color they are, like white people are going to be definitely more against him or like and people and people who themselves or their parents or grandparents own slaves on sugar plantations in Cuba. Yeah. They're going to have different opinions than me. <laughs> Someone whose mom was a victim of apartheid and um, the Cuban government did a lot for uh, the black population in like the southern part of Africa, not just South Africa. So it's kind of, I don't want to place any judgment, but I kind of feel like maybe if it was about 60 years earlier, um, maybe that Cuba Libre thing would have like turned into a different operation that will have tried to displace the government. But I mean, they already tried that with the Bay of Pigs operation, which didn't necessarily go to plan. So, and then and trying to yeah. assess the U.S. trying to assassinate Castro dozens of times and completely failing. I think my favorite story is like he was a scuba diving guy, like the scuba dive, and they tried to lace his uh, scuba the inside of his scuba um, diving kit with I don't know arsenic or whatever, and somehow it didn't work. But like, dude, this guy like was a a magician like just escaped these all these yeah. crazy elaborate attempts yeah the There's stories of the cia sending like concubines to assassin him by like seducing him and then they would just like not kill him <laughs> <laughs> i wonder why or like the the number that i hear is like 600 attempts on his life i don't know how oh my goodness he failed over 600 times i'm not sure if i believe that because of how incredible that is but yeah. seems a bit sensational but i mean given how much the u.s seemed to hate him <laughs> it had to be dozens it really it had to be yeah so again that's just like kind of the recent stuff especially with the bolivian um election debacle where Evo morales like ended up being the winner but the um organization for elections i think it's the oes or the oaes something like that um either way it's an irrelevant tool of like the cia (laughs) Um, basically got the military in bolivia to make evo morales like the first indigenous leader in latin america to step down so and i mean his his um, economist, uh, Luis Arce, was able to win the following election. But again, I, I really think the U.S., especially now recently with the Colombian elections, its influence in Latin America is starting to fade, especially I believe that the thing that will be able to kind of salt solidify that prediction for me is if Lula wins this upcoming October in Brazil, but that's still 
four months away. So we don't really know what exactly is going to happen with that, but uh, that's just kind of my rundown. And I could talk a little bit more about Asia really quickly because I'm, I'm more knowledgeable about Latin America. I took a class on Latin American politics, but um, in terms of imperialism in Asia, everyone knows about the Vietnam War and the millions of people that the U.S. killed in um, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos with bombing campaigns in Agent Orange and how they essentially set um, Vietnam back to the Stone Ages um, and the Korean War. I'm going to provide a take on the Korean War that people probably have never heard, but it's going to be shocking. No one cared about Korea like at all. Not the Soviets, not the Americans at first. That's why they were just going to leave it partitioned and they were going to figure out what to do with it later. But then the North Koreans, who um, I want to get his name right, Uh, the original leader of North Korea. Kim Jong-il? I believe it was... It was before... It was like Kim Il Sung or something. Yeah, it was Kim Il Sung. Again, he was yeah. he was a hero across Korea because of the anti-imperialist leadership he brought when Japan controlled Korea. So he had the idea that they were going to unify both Koreas, and the Soviets were like, "Whatever, go ahead." And then they had gotten to like almost completely eradicate the South Korean army and then the U S or should I say the United nations? <laughs> Cause they were able to get it legally done because the Soviet Union was protesting, um, the lack of the Mao government in China being on the, uh, security council. Um, they were able to use the United nations military and push the Koreans back, but then they went too far for the Chinese's comfort. And then that's how we get to the situation we're in today. And the U.S.'s relations with China as we lead into that. Um, In terms of imperialism, the U.S. originally wanted to kind of use Mao to exploit the Soviet Union. They wanted to create a fracture in like the communist bloc. But I mean, it didn't really end up working because they kind of didn't listen on the whole Korean War thing. Um, So basically, uh, the U.S. and China had really not good relations until the 1970s when China's relations with the Soviet Union started to sour. Um, That that basically happened after Stalin's death. Um, Stalin and Mao were somewhat close, um, but... Mao really had no respect for any of the Soviet leaders after him, even though um, I believe it was Stalin that originally gave the advice to Mao that ended in their defeat and them having to make a dangerous trek across country through the mountains um, before World War II started in Asia. So um, Basically, the way that the U.S. stays like kind of imperialistically involved with China nowadays is just through the use of capitalism. So nothing really fancy or anything. Um, 
and I guess also the support of Taiwan, which again, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish anyone or their background, uh, but the U.S. does give a lot of support to Taiwan and Hong Kong, which again, you're free to feel however you want to feel about those two places. I don't want to, I don't want to put anyone down. So, and then also in uh, West Asia, I almost got them confused, but obviously the U.S. and the Middle East have had a really terrible relationship, especially recently. But going no back, way, that can't uh, be right. We brought democracy. Oh, yeah, we we brought democracy, all right. But by um, overthrowing Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in the 1950s. That was in our notes. <laughs> was go figure, because that's that's the big big topic there, but. Yeah, they overthrew um, the democratically elected Iranian government and installed the Shah, which led to the Ayatollah eventually in the Iranian revolution. Um, If you all want to pick it up here, you can feel free to, because I could go on and on and on. Yeah, Charles, do you have anything to add about anything in the Middle East or anything like that? Not in particular. Had a, I've had a good time listening to you guys. Certainly just a lot of good history and details that I didn't know enough about before. So thank you for that. Yeah. I guess one thing we did want to touch on at some point was just sort of the impact of imperialism here domestically and how the sort of glorification of the military has become very pervasive and influential, even if it's not something that we notice when we're young. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Do you want to go ahead and say something about that, Drew? Yeah, I have some stuff that I can definitely say. Um, so I think first and foremost, or at least one of the most important things, is that for the U.S. domestically, the poor are greatly disproportionately sent to and killed in wars. Um, the poor fight the wars, the rich um, orchestrate them is basically how it works every time. Because if you're rich enough, you know, you can afford to bribe or get your way any means, uh, by any means possible out of serving wars because you're rich. If you're poor, you cannot afford to do that. You have neither the social, the socioeconomic power or the physical monetary power to be able to do that. Um, So in pretty much every case, we have you know, a ton of poor people um, finding these wars all across the country or across the world um, or these certain operations and getting themselves killed. Um, and this fuels the fire of the military industrial complex, which I think we could have a whole episode about. The military industrial complex, short and simple, makes lots of money off of wars. And they are a huge reason why the U.S. has put themselves into so many positions of violence and and uh, warmongering across the world. Uh, they have undue influence on our political systems and our economy. Um, it's extremely undemocratic. It's a very small group of um, corporations and powerful people who um, have this influence on our government. Um, but nevertheless, they put um, especially poor people and anybody in general um, it's two dangerous positions. Um, Eyes Left is a great podcast I've listened to with Mike Prisoner and all the other people. And they talk about 
I think during the Gulf War and the, well, really the Iraq War they served in, uh, they have all these incompetent generals who don't really see action. They just send people, you know, the, the poor, um, you know, further down the chain of the hierarchy um, soldiers out to do the dirty work. And they get poor instructions. They get poor tactics because these aren't democratically elected um, military leaders. And they put them in very dangerous positions where they're just, you know, walking over bombs all the time and instructed to shoot um, innocent or blow up innocent people, um, which I think one of the best cases of that is, um, I mean, it's not even the military, it's a PMC, a private military corporation, which can easier be absolved of accountability in these cases. Uh, but back in December 2020, President Trump uh, pardoned these guys from uh, Blackwater, now known as Academy of Two Eyes, um, who had killed, I think it was a car in Iraq that was driving down the street and they shot and killed um, you know, a bunch of people, innocent people. They didn't have guns, they weren't terrorists, anything like that. Um, but this is this happened countless times in the Middle East. I mean, millions dead, uh, millions bombed, millions shot, um, you know, breaking the people's houses, um, you know, looking for quote unquote terrorists and you know, throwing men, men up against the wall and beating them up and torture and putting them in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> it's just this whole thing. But yeah, like domestically, this hurts us because, you know, again, we're putting all these people in the line on these citizens that shouldn't be there in the first place. We don't need to be fighting these wars. None of these wars are defensive. They're all very offensive. Um, there hasn't been a war. Uh, you know, there hasn't been an attack in the U.S. since, you know, really 1945. I guess you can make an argument for 2001. Um, before 1945, it was like 1812 when Britain invaded. but. 1941, yeah. 1941, yes. Yeah, so it's even longer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a lot of this in the Middle East, especially, is about the quest for a consistent oil supply um, to satisfy oil and gas companies and just the geography of the area um, it's so that there's a rich supply of oil and the, you know, the U.S. is not there. So they have to use their economic and military might to make sure they um, get all that access to that oil. Um, to power, you know, all the fossil fuel emissions and growth that we have today because of that. Um, which I guess lends me to say, like, um, that the military-industrial complex, the military general, is a huge polluter, accounting more than 171 countries, which is insane to me, um, that they are polluting, you know, more than some of the biggest countries on Earth. And, you know, for the, the, the people that stay here, you know, that are here in the U.S. that don't go and fight the wars, you know, we're spending increasing amounts of money. Like there, there's just a new bill, you know, 800 something billion for the military. We're not fighting the wars. You know, um, it's absolutely insane. Um, and instead of spending that, we can spend uh, we can fund better health care or infrastructure, which we desperately need for for the public. Um, or any number of things, fighting homelessness, things that actually benefit everyday Americans are being spent, you know, killing innocent people all around the world and putting, you know, soldiers on the line, um, getting them killed. Um, it's just, 
very immoral, evil system. Yeah, and I just want to add on to that by saying that it's kind of hard to um, exist in the U.S. without, like, contributing to the war system. And it's like, it, it goes back to that one meme that's like, you know, society should be better, but you participate in society, so you're bad. But kind of my takeaway is that the reason why we are as aggressive in terms of any perceived threat to capitalism is because that's what capitalism does. It is a exploitative. Yeah. It is a coercive system and it is exploitative and it needs um, an underclass, so to speak, to exploit. And that, yeah. and if they can't really do that here as much as they would like, I mean, they still do get away with it um, by paying people here starvation wages while um corporate profits soar yeah as ceos are able to extract all that um wage surplus as you would say or worker profit as i'll call it um they really do a lot of that worldwide and if you don't conform to that then all of a sudden you're the enemy um and you need to be on the receiving end of harsh military action. So sanctions, um, war, coup d'etats, and how that affects our psyche is that, at least with my takeaway, is that we're raised to believe that the U.S. is always going to be in the good. So take, for example, Star Wars. (laughs) Uh, yeah, the movie Star Wars that everyone who's on the alt-right seems to love. <laughs> Whatever. That's because they see the U.S. as the rebels, and they probably think that the U.K. is supposed to represent the empire, and the U.S. is supposed to be the rebel alliance. However, that's not what George Lucas said. He said that it was actually based on the Vietnam War, so that would make the U.S. the empire. Uh, yeah. So... <laughs> The term, yeah. Sorry, the term rebel just stands out to me as optically bad now that I think about it because that just harkens back to the Confederacy and you know, yeah, the rebel. Same thing. <laughs> Whenever I think of rebels, I think of the Civil War for some reason. Go Ole Miss or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Vestavia Hills High School down in Alabama. Yeah. Did they, did they ever change their nickname? Probably not. They thought it was too woke. Maybe. But yeah, so a lot of people cannot see that the you not see. That's that's not a play on. <laughs> they it, they cannot visualize that the US is actually supposed to or is not always the good faithful actor that we want to believe it is. Even in good action in World War II where we stood against fascism in Europe, where we stood against the Nazis, where we stood against um, Imperialist Japan. Yeah, Imperialist Japan and the Mussolini government in in Italy. We still a knew that the Holocaust was going on, but didn't intervene in it. And B, we let millions of 
uh, Eastern Europeans die while we kind of pursued our own military strategy. And then afterwards, and this is, I wanted to work back to this. We imperialized a lot of Europe as well. Oh yeah. Through the Marshall plan and so forth. Yes. And there were actually a lot of communist uprisings. I don't know if everyone knows that there were a lot of communist uprisings in like France and Italy um, after world war II, but they were kind of quelled by the governments in those respective countries. Pro-U.S. governments. Yes. So, again, because we ended up winning the Cold War, so to speak, and because um, the propaganda that's tied into capitalism, that's tied into white supremacy, that's tied into all these other things that are kind of burned into our brain. That's why... um, we kind of struggle to evaluate imperialism as a whole. And to kind of prove that point, we could probably think back to what the discourse was like after 9-11, um, as you said, or as you brought up, Drew, that that was like kind of the last maybe attack on the U.S. Um, 3,000 people died that day, right? How many millions of people died in Iraq? Yeah. <laughs> because of what the U.S. did. And we don't even really bat an eye at what we did in Iraq. We're like, oh, that was a bad war to be in. But, and I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone, maybe you get some like really fringe weirdos, like an alliance between like um, probably some, I don't know, corporate Republicans and some just fascists that... (laughs) believe that the war in Iraq was actually good. Uh, thinking of Ben Shapiro mostly, but uh-huh. yeah, maybe you get some people that think it was actually good, but it killed millions of people and U.S. involvement in Afghanistan killed hundreds of thousands of people. And so, don't forget that, and don't forget that the Bush administration and Dick Cheney and all those other people completely lied about weapons of mass destruction. They found zero evidence of any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And they still went for this war and got millions of innocent people killed. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm talking about with, we can't really evaluate imperialism because every time it comes up, we kind of fail to do so in my opinion. I think it's easy. Sorry. I think it's easy now to think about it. to just blame it. Oh, it's just that bad administration because we're Republican or because of this or whatever. Um, But this is it's not a Republican Democrat thing. Uh, Obama is horrible for imperialism. Uh, Bush was obviously terrible. Clinton was terrible. Nixon. I mean, pretty pretty much every president I can think of, um, you know, continued these violent um, imperialist policies across the world. And there's really no one you can find that's that's faultless at all. It's ingrained in the U.S. system and the U.S. psyche. And I'm not going to tell people to, like, become a Leninist or anything. I myself am not. But really what Lenin was saying about imperialism is that the exploited countries, so the countries that are doing the exploitation, so like the Western countries, they're not going to want to get rid of that as easily. However, the countries that are exploited are going to want to get rid of that power dynamic because they do not benefit it, benefit from it at all. 
And so I think we just have to keep that prediction in mind. I mean, it's a prediction come truth, so to speak. But yeah. So. I mean, even today we see, you know, when we separate the world in the global north and the global south, um, global north being the much more hegemonic um, dominant power economically and militarily, global south, not so much. Um, And yet we still see this extreme um, extraction of resources and profits um, from the global south um, to go directly to the global north in order to repeat that cycle again and again. This uh, concept of colonialism and imperialism, even if there's not direct military force all the time, they're like like there used to be, this still exists absolutely systemically, um, reality. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can just take a look at, you know, compare some of the countries in the global south, you know, places like Africa and parts of Asia to um, global north and the supply chains and all these corporations, you know, Nestle and all the others. Um, and you can really see how um, this has been so damaging to the global south and it just keeps perpetuating itself. Right. I saw yeah. some people who are irritated on social media with the results of the Colombian election. Because they're saying that like gas prices were going to get worse because like Colombia elected some communists. Like it just oil <laughs> all over again. Yeah. It's like the Key and Peel sketch. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it also reminds me of, and I'm, I'm going to mention his name. Um, he doesn't like me just probably because of how I identify, but Dave Chappelle, when he did <laughs> Black Bush skit back when all the Iraq war, um, I don't want to like reduce it to like a dilemma or anything, but back when the propaganda for the Iraq war was really heavy here, he like did a skit that was called Black Bush and he was George Bush, but black. And <laughs> And one of the jokes that I still think about is a reporter asked him about oil and he responded, oil? He was talking about oil, someone cooking, and then he like ran away. (laughs) So, yeah. And I just wanted to like say that this is why I believe that YDSA is good because back in like the first semester um, of like YDSA, there was a member that like graduated the year that like COVID happened. Um, and we were talking about um, the 2020 election because it hadn't happened yet. Um, so, and I was like, oh, you know, you just have to make the case to people that the U.S. partakes in imperialism and like they'll be smart enough to figure it out. And he was like, well, why would people want to change that if they don't benefit from it? And if they're poor and they already don't see like, the benefits of um, the U.S. society as it's set up. And I mean, that's a real, like, that was a real um, eye-opener. I mean, I didn't really, like, come around to that for, like, a year or so, but it's really eye-opening to think of even back then. Yeah, I think some of the most powerful systems um, that prevent us from being able to learn from and respond appropriately to um, U.S. imperialism, our education system, and I guess general American culture and history. 
So with education, right, with imperialism, we do a very poor job of teaching true, honest history. Um, We downplay what the U.S. has done or we um, whitewash it. Um, You know, we did this and some of it was bad, but ultimately it was good because blank um, or just straight up ignores a lot of events and developments that happened and what the U.S. really did. Um, And a lot of this is because it's just not advantageous to the U.S. state um, that they would teach this history. You know, it makes them look bad, like people aren't going to serve in the military. Um, But we have to get past that and teach real history, teach it all, or otherwise we will continue this exploitative imperialist system. Um, And I guess when it comes down to American culture um, and, and history, you know, you have the revolutionary war, um, you know, so because of that, because they were revolting against legitimate, like um, imperialism on behalf of um, uh, Britain and unfair taxation and all that stuff. I think Americans still see themselves as, you know, super innocent, like angels that like could do no wrong. Like, you know, we fought against like, you know, oppression or imperialism. Like we want to help give democracy everybody else. Um, Even though things have drastically changed. And just because you are imperialized yourself doesn't absolve your responsibility. If you go around and do with a bunch of other countries, which the U S has done in 81, They've just um, intervened in 81 foreign elections between 1946 and 2000, according to a 2016 study by um, Carnegie Mellon University professor Dov Levin. And I think another thing is um, American exceptionalism and like manifest destiny, you know, this um, pseudo religious explanation for America being good. And we should continue to, you know, take over the West, even at the expense of millions of indigenous people and their humanity and their lives. Um, and like America was this, um, city, let's see, city upon a hill. Um, it's, it's fundamentally different and better from other countries because of how the constitution was set up. And, um, you know, the, um, the Christian ties and all that stuff. Um, I think that makes people very complacent and, very easy to dismiss any allegations of imperialism or really anything bad systemically about this country. And I think that, um, you know, we, we really don't teach this stuff truthfully and honestly, if we even teach it at all, um, for the most part, especially like K through 12 public or, or private schools. If you're homeschooled, if you're in the demographic I'm thinking of, like probably not learning anything critical of the u.s state if i had to guess (laughs) imagine what the kids in germany have to learn about world war ii yeah apparently they have to they throw everything at them they have to like go to like a concentration camp or or something like that imagine like if southern kids had to like go to (laughs) a place that is a plantation i don't know about y'all but like i like used to live on something that was a plantation like that's crazy yeah and there's or like go to andersonville prison in georgia yeah just imagine if kids had to do that i mean i'm not sure that would change or it changed the hearts of a lot of people but like it would definitely be eye-opening but then again southern history as a whole is not good (laughs) yeah like at least in history classes it's not very useful 
my grandmother is writing a book about the entire history of her farm that she's been living on for the past couple of decades. And I read a chapter of it. It was very good. But even for that one small plot of land, it's just all the terrible Southerness about like, you know, corrupt plantation owners and slavery and just all the political machinations of the 1800s. It's, it's like, it's so dominant that even like in her small little piece of land it just dominates the whole history i just thought it was fascinating i can't wait till she's done with it right yeah and just like the fact that i mean i i happen to live in a military town so <laughs> i mean it doesn't take like much guessing as to what town i live in i'm not going to say it for like security reasons but <laughs> um i live in a military town so like the kind of, I guess, deference to imperialism, it's still kind of pretty strong here, too. So, um, yeah, just like the fact that I live where they used to be um, picking cotton, or I guess not really, like, I guess there were woods there, and they just chopped them down. But, like, the fact that there were probably people that, like, tried to escape through where I used to live. It's just mind boggling. People yeah. don't understand what it really means to have your freedom totally taken away. All right. Like it's, it's easy. Oh yeah. Slavery is bad. But it's like to understand how bad it was. Like, that's something that nobody should have to experience and how it still perpetuates today. You know, through the loophole in the 13th amendment still allows slavery through the prison system, um, systemic, um, racism against people of color and everything else. Like it still very much impacts in white supremacy. Um, all that stuff very much has an impact today. And just, if, you know, the fact, for example, that like, um, white people have 10 times the wealth of, um, black people, um, and all these other statistics I could pull out. Um, people who are comfortable with their lives and, you know, seem, you know, to enjoy great freedom because they're privileged and so forth. Like, um, they're not bothered to learn any of that, right? Um, unless they're just really altruistic. Um, but, you know, it's just easy for them to sit back and say, like, you know, that's not my problem. That's something from the past without considering ramifications, you know, right now. Yeah. And I think the imperialist mindset is that the U.S. is fundamentally a good country, but it's made mistakes along the way because it's not perfect. And I mean, yeah. I don't know about y'all, but I don't think mass genocide and taking millions of people away from their homes and dehumanizing, slavery. Yeah, yeah. dehumanizing people, kicking them off their land. Um, I don't think that is good as a foundation. <laughs> no. And, and people I mean, treat the constitution as if it is this um, flawless religious oh, this constitution it's, worship. I hate it so it's much. It's insane. Yeah. Like people, our whole judicial system is based on how we interpret this piece of paper written hundreds of years ago by straight, uh, you know, slave owning white supremacist men. Like it's insane. a little questionable. <laughs> Just a little sus. Yeah, straight. Outward, outwardly straight, perhaps. 
I mean, <laughs> I know Alexander Hamilton was like, at least from historical documents, he was a little gay. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, and people don't realize that even Thomas Jefferson said that every 15 to 20 years, like a new constitution should be written. Yep. Like every other healthy democracy, you know, and the social democracies in Europe and everywhere else, they amend their constitution very frequently because things change in hundreds of years. And if you don't guarantee certain a bunch of civil rights in your your constitution, um, you realize, hey, maybe you should have done that. Like you should be able to change that because that is not okay. Yep. And now and, we are on 30 years without an update to the constitution, like in terms of like amendments. So yeah. And the last and, one that was added was no law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened, which is like you can't upgrade your salary until like after an election, I believe. Yeah, the founding fathers set up the constitution and other institutions they created to be very static, very difficult to change, um, and very anti-democratic. You know, especially like the Supreme yeah. Court, Senate, and the Electoral College. Um, this which whole checks and balances thing. They teach you about like, oh, it's good; it keeps everybody in check. But it's like all you're doing is stopping any progress from being made. Like, yeah. Think about how hard it is to pass anything in Congress. It's literally impossible. Mm -hmm. It just gets shot down for the neoliberal conservative Senate every single time. Yeah. Especially the fact that, like, you get a lifetime um, appointment if you're a Supreme Court justice. Like, how is that being held (laughs) in check? Like, oh, yeah, you could be impeached. But what happens if you're in a period like now where neither party is going to get to 67 um, senators. Yeah. (laughs) Like, let's, let's say that, I don't know, let's say Brett Kavanaugh went out on like Washington Avenue and shot someone. Do you think he would be impeached? Do you think he would be convicted and removed? No. (laughs) Nope. So. It's okay when we do it, but not when they do it. That's the principle that seems to be the case and then you have the people it's like oh we have to obey the rule of law like you know the law (laughs) is what matters like you literally have just sacrificed any sort of inner moral compass or ethics just for law like for what like what do you even care about if that's your point of view like what if what what even matters to you (laughs) what what if the law is objectively and morally not right what about that case? You know, like people seem to just not consider that. Exactly. Well, I mean, that people had to get beaten in the streets for that, for that disagreement of philosophy. So, yeah, I just saw um, that in Greenville, you know, near where I go to Clemson, um, you know, the police beating up innocent protesters. I didn't see the larger clip, but um, I, I strong have a strong feeling that um, this is unprovoked and this is meant to intimidate um, people protesting for their rights um, and pre- prevent any dissent and increase authoritarianism. Um, and it's very dangerous because I'm only seeing more of it. And then, you know, those same cops, they won't 
protect us when, you know, we have a Uvalde, we have um, a Buffalo shooting or Sandy Hook or, um, you know, anything. Um, they're, they're not out to protect um, everyday citizens. They're there to protect property and certain people at the top and class interests and the military and, you know, apparently su six Supreme Court justices, they have snipers on the roof and all that stuff. So, I mean, there is there was that Supreme Court case where they ruled that police do not have a specific legal duty to protect individuals. Yep. Uh, Castle Rock v. Gonzalez. In like 2006. Yep. And there was it was also the 1981. I think it was Warren versus District of Columbia. Yeah. And I think it was the Court of Appeals that ruled that police officers. It's like you have a general duty to protect the public, but no duty to protect the individuals and <laughs> the gray area guess, in that like, OK, thanks. Well, guess who makes up the, the public <laughs> individuals, right? It's like, what kind of language is that? Yeah, especially with the fact that apparently due process is on the cutting block. So even if like you have evidence that you didn't commit a crime, they could still keep you in jail or in prison. It's almost as if like all the the good parts of the of the institutions, if you will, there aren't that many of them, but the ones that are are just being eroded away right now. Yeah, and I mean, I guess this is a full circle moment for us because we started off talking about this, but yeah, it's just a really, I guess, interesting time, you know, when Tucker Carlson's calling, like, nowadays, the Weimar. <laughs> the Weimar. What? Yeah, he, he like, made, like, a joke, quote-unquote, because, you know, you know how right-wingers have their sense of humor, <laughs> like... <laughs> They have their Not sense of humor of wanting to say racial slurs in the <laughs> pod lobby, but... Um, we made a joke about that last podcast. It was something about, like, Tucker Carlson, like, just trying desperately, just, like, having Anders and trying not to say the N-word. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, didn't the, um, didn't the uh, gentleman that joined you from Alabama also, like, do a Tucker Carlson impression? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nelson. Uh, Nelson. <laughs> He, he did a great job. That was, he did. That was really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he, he pulled it out like two or three times and just, he had it all down. It was beautiful. Uh, Nelson, if you're listening now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was really funny to listen to, but it's just really <laughs> interesting times, you know? And I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to um, drag it out too much, but I did come across like a TikTok last night or this morning. I don't really remember, but um, <laughs> someone was like saying how in the Weimar Republic, there was like kind of this idea that things were getting better, especially for like the gay community. And there were like, um, there was a huge trans community and, um, you know, thriving medical center for trans people and, and all these books and documents that ended up getting burned by the Nazis. But yeah. And so over time, like they had their rights eroded and taken away. And I think that's just kind of the big thing we have to look out for. And I kind of like thought about it a little bit more. And I think 
it it should be like cause for concern, not just like what a fascist dictatorship would do internally to the American people, but what it might be capable of doing abroad. Because we know that one thing fascists like to do is they like to expand. So yeah, where would they expand to? Would they expand to like Cuba? Because you know they've had their eye on Cuba for like ever. Would they Canada, Canada, Mexico, like where does it stop? Like, so that's just something we should probably keep an eye on in like geopolitical, like happenings in terms of that, you know, like, will this be the thing that leads to a lot of countries breaking away from an alliance with the U S and like, will that mean that China now becomes like what the U S is to a lot of countries? It's like, you know, we're kind of allied because we don't want to be under threat. So it's just kind of going to be interesting to watch. But I, I guess that's that's all I got to say. Yeah, I guess to tie back a little bit to imperialism. So a few weeks ago, I went by um, family to see Top Gun. Um, with Tom Cruise. Um, it's a new revamp of the old movie from the 80s. Um, good movie, like, in terms of, you know, story writing and um, producing and the storyline, all that good stuff. Did they play um, um, Kenny Loggins, though? <laughs> what's that? Did they play Kenny Loggins? Did they play Danger Zone? Probably. I don't, I don't really remember, honestly. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, one thing that kind of slips through that you know, people don't really think about that as a huge piece of military propaganda. I mean, obviously, like, you know, it's the Marvel U.S. military. Movies. What's the Marvel that? Too. The Marvel movies. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hollywood's, like, completely in bed with the military. Um, but, like... Oh, wait, I know, thought they were... I thought they were liberal. I thought they were... <laughs> I know, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but, um, for example, like, for this movie, the... In order for... Um, you know, Top Gun to be able to use the military's likeness and use some of their um, planes and facilities and all that, they have to sign a contract. And that contract has a lot of stipulations uh, between them and the military. Um, one of them is that um, after they finish the final script, the military is to look over and make changes they deem necessary um, to preserve the integrity of the military or whatever. Um, so, for example, they've taken out homosexual um, slurs, I think, um, because, you know, it makes them look bad, obviously, but that's what happens a lot in the military, um, or, um, any number of things, um, that, that makes them look better. And, um, I mean, you can look, there's a database of all the, the films that have been messed with by the military and they put their propaganda pieces in to sanitize the military and um, continue this idea of American exceptionalism and imperialism, make it okay. And, you know, part of that in this movie I found is like, you know, maybe they're just trying not to fear monger, you know, against another country, but they never showed the faces of anyone on the other side, which I found is very dehumanizing. And they had all this performative patriotism, like they had the funeral with all the flags, you know, draped over the coffin and stuff. Um, and it just continues this idea 
um, that U.S. imperialism is okay and it's just fine. You know, you have all these heroic people and stuff like that, but you never, you don't see all the suffering that goes into it, um, both in the part of the, the soldiers that are fighting these wars and um, all the people in the global south that are victims of these wars and get killed. Um, but it's it's extremely biased and, um, you know, continues this um, pattern of imperialization and, and just fighting it. Right. Media is a huge thing. And I'll just, I'll pull out um, this book really quick to kind of put it all together for people that um, really power is like in all corners of society. So let me, so there's like three contested um, dimensions of power. And this comes from um, John Gabenta, Power and Powerless, um, if anyone wants to pick that up. Um, the one dimensional approach is kind of like the pluralist approach, which is like the side with better organizing is going to be the side that ends up winning and like smaller. Uh, no, wait, that's not exactly true, but there's smaller groups and there's larger groups that will organize against each other and whoever has the more convincing arguments win. Um, and then the two dimensional approach, which is. Um, People can be, um, I guess, deprived and smaller groups have the advantage and the um, mobilization isn't, or the lack of mobilization isn't necessarily people just not caring. It's the fact that they don't have anything to do or like they can't change anything. And then there's the third dimension approach, which includes a lot of what you were just talking about, Drew, with um, the media lies, um, kind of propaganda that is included in power. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of those, I mean, a lot of this stuff is out there. You can see, you know, who's funding this politician, you know, who's funding this particular movie, what cuts did they make to the script? Uh, and once you evaluate that from a, a meta-analysis point of view, um, it's pretty clear they have very certain interest in um, whitewashing anything that makes the U.S. state or military or whatever look bad or institutions. Um and, you know, keeping the American public complicit um, in any way possible. <laughs> Charles, I haven't heard from you. Have you. Do you have anything to add? It's definitely hard to avoid just the general influence of, you know, the, the concept of American exceptionalism. I think also the military industrial complex and just how it sort of just bleeds into your life in various ways. Like, you know, I was an engineering undergrad and many of the jobs that are marketed towards us are for companies like Boeing, Raytheon, and Northrop Grumman who show up to campuses and recruit kids to work for them to like, you know, build military airplanes and design missiles and do coding and stuff. And, you know, there's kind of two groups of 
students who approach this, those who are really excited, which is a lot because these companies offer really high starting salaries, the higher yeah. a lot of people, it's really not that hard to get hired by these companies. I heard recently at Clemson a few months ago, you know, those positions are very high demand. They're looking for a lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, people get, you know, very excited about these, you know, career days when, you know, Northrop Grumman shows up and they all go suit and tie with resumes in hand and be a part of that. And then there's people like me who know for a fact that they can't do something like that, whether it's for ethical reasons or because they want to do a job they actually like, you know, with just fulfilling work. For me, it's both in a someone who's sort of, oh, go ahead. So you're telling me you don't get satisfaction from helping blowing up innocent kids in the Middle East? Believe it or not, I, I do not. <laughs> no amount of money is going to change that. <laughs> so like, you know, I'm someone who's sort of in the wilderness career-wise because I'm someone who's academically extremely qualified in a lot of different things, but just still figuring out exactly what I want to be doing. But I would take that dilemma over, you know, being stuck in it like Boeing right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I respect you for that. Like sticking to your guns, sticking to your morals. So I feel like some of these engineering kids have to deal with stuff like that. Just these really powerful companies that and it's not just, you know, the big companies that I mentioned that we all know about. There's also other ones like petrochemical companies and stuff like that. Nestle you know, that also have, you know, are actors of imperialism or are otherwise contributors to the military industrial complex. Give lots so, of money to the military. Yeah. Like I remember for a time when I was sort of getting into this whole like biology and like plant stuff. And I remember someone told me like, oh, you could work for Monsanto for a couple years so that he could sort of like learn how it all works then go do your own thing it's like why like why would i even do that to myself to begin with why would i work for the company that poisoned the entire town of aniston alabama so this sort of like acceptance of oh yeah you can work for an ethically questionable company and then at some point move on like it's it's not always easy to move on so i don't know sometimes it feels like career-wise i'm almost backed into a corner of working for people I don't want to work for. <laughs> yeah, I've had a similar experience at Clemson. Um, I got contacted twice. The first time I didn't respond. The second time I did from this like sergeant with the Clemson RTC saying like, hey, we got lots of opportunities and jobs for you and um, come join us and be a part of something great, better yourself, whatever they say. Um, and I, I responded the second time like back in September and I said, uh, no, thanks. I don't want to be a part of work crimes and sent like two memes. One of them was the one I think you sent to me, Charles. Um, it was uh, the celebrity chef and um, the one the one about oil, if you recall that one. I do. I don't remember the specifics of it. I just remember it was very funny. <laughs> yes. I didn't know uh, that you sent that to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, he didn't like it too much, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, this this type of behavior preys on again the poor people, the marginalized, um, who often have no choice that they want to get college funding or they want to get a job otherwise. Um, 
and you know, a lot of these people have to sacrifice their morals or, you know, they're just, I guess, unaware because of this terrible education system we have, um, you know, being part of something that destructive. Um, and it's just, it's really unfortunate. And a lot of this imperialism and like super patriotism, nationalism stuff can be very subtle. Um, you know, I see, I, I see, you know, these little kids being created around by the parents. So like two, three, four, and they're just decked out in American flag, like shorts and shirt and like just everything. And it's on their trucks. Um, and then we have, you know, sporting events we have, you know, or in schools, we have the pledge of pledge of allegiance. And it's like socially awkward. If you like, don't at least stand up, if not put your hand over your heart. Um, and then, you know, going back to sporting events, um, you know, the national anthem, um, and all the like jet flyovers and the military honors and um, and all that stuff is, you know, ingraining this ideology into us and making it, you know, making it okay, making us complicit with it. Um, it can be very subtle and innocent, you know, appearing, but you know, when you really scale back and look at it, like um, it's very destructive and it makes us as a, an American public very complicit. Um, makes it easier to um, compel us to do what uh, the military industrial complex um, or American state needs us to do. It's like, you know, some people say like, well, you can level all these criticisms and you have, you know, you have some, um, you're correct there in some cases. Um, But at the end of the day, we have freedom. It's like, not, no, like compared to other countries, um, you know, in Europe and other places that have, objectively been shown on certain i mean many metrics um to have higher levels of you know socioeconomic mobility um and you know human rights and healthcare um and lower rates of poverty no by all those objective measures you know getting as close to measuring freedom as you possibly can uh that's no that's not true america is not the most like free country in the world um freedom is more than a lack of restriction Positive and negative freedom, guys. It takes more than just not having restrictions to have freedom. You need to enable and encourage, you know, actual liberation and the freedom to choose and to act. So, yeah, I think like hate speech is a good example of this, right? Um, okay, let's let everybody say as much hate speech as they want. Uh, okay, well, people can say whatever they want, freedom of speech, great. But the problem with that is you have, you know, these marginalized communities um, that this is directed towards, you know, most of the time. And you're quelling their freedom of speech by drowning it it out by these threats and these, um, you know, horrid acts of speech or physical acts that they perform against these people. so you can't, you can't allow that to be normalized as a society. Um, it's like, you know, fight hate speech, like on all levels and all that. Um, like there's still plenty of people on the right right now that totally defend, like you can say whatever you want. Um, but they, they don't consider the consequences. And most of those people are not, you know, marginalized, um, in marginalized communities. So they, they have no idea what they're, you know, what the consequences of that are. 
Well, we've been on this for around two hours, so I think we <laughs> very fruitful discussion. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Chanel, if you had any last words you wanted to add. Um, I guess just kind of remember to always do the work of unlearning and finding out what's true, what's not true in terms of like U.S. politics and power and that kind of sort. I mean, I still have a lot of learning to do, like just to give an example, like, is it morally wrong for me to move to like Canada because it might like, even if like I moved to somewhere like Toronto or Montreal, because I'm moving to a settler colonial estate that still like sweeps under the rug the deaths of indigenous um, First Nations people. Is that morally correct? And that's like something you have to learn and you have to do some internal searching. So it it's not just a, oh yeah, I think I have a good idea of things and I'm static and I don't have to like continually think. You have to always try to learn and try to unlearn and find the truth, essentially. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I think I have, you know, one last parting word here. Um, you know, people say like, oh, the U.S. Um, doesn't do imperialism anymore. Like they don't occupy anybody. Uh, that's completely false. I mean, most, I mean, the whole country is illegally occupied by indigenous people, from indigenous people already. Um, but even look at um, Guam and Puerto Rico and, um, and Hawaii too, um, all extreme cases of imperialism. Um, you know, we control these countries, yet we, yet we do not give them um, the freedom to elect their own leaders and participate in the U.S. if they want to. I mean, they shouldn't be forced to, obviously, if they don't want to be a part of the U.S. state, which I totally understand. Um, I mean, these are pretty impoverished places that the U.S. is um, kind of smothered, I mean, very much. Um, and so it absolutely continues to this day. And those, you know, those places um, have been really crushed by U.S. imperialism. And, uh, <laughs> you know, especially Puerto Ricans uh, don't feel too happy about the way they've been treated by the U.S. historically and, and presently. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. But thank you, Chanel, for joining us. I learned so much from your talks about, you know, Latin America and Asia. That was that was really nice to listen to. And, of course, Drew, great work on your geography paper. <laughs> thank you. So I think that was a great discussion and we're looking forward to getting this out to the world and planning our next episode. So until then, peace out.